0: Welcome to another episode of One of Two Hundred. This is uh, Brian uh on a annoyingly squeaky chair today, uh, which I'm going to try <laughs> and not <laughs> interrupt this entire recording. Uh, with me uh, is Philip Manstead. Uh Always, always great to have uh, the the dynamic duo uh, <laughs> in, uh, in the in the in the non-existent studio. Uh, Philip, how are you going?
1: Good, man. Good going. Going okay. Getting through winter, I suppose. How's, how's the states?
0: Yeah, well, you know, over here it's summer, so it's a little, uh, it's, not, it's not as bad, but, you know, at the same time, we're also uh, over here having this crazy uh, COVID surge as well. So, um, you know, it's 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 like kind of traveling back in time while also staying in the exact same place that you were. So it's, it's a very really strange experience. Um, people are just sort of, you yeah. know. Given up on, on everything, which I I can understand. Yeah, but we do not.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry, given up on life, the land of opportunity. Good job. <laughs> yeah, job now, okay. yeah, giving up on life, or at least
0: you know, kind of gone into a soft nihilism. Um, yeah. Perhaps a, uh, a, a a alarming uh, <laughs> side of what fate may wait us. But uh, try not, not to it talk today. about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this isn't a podcast about uh, the the horrible COVID situation in in the United States. Uh, We're here to talk about uh, a number of things, but in particular, uh, I guess the big news of this week for uh, politics watchers in New Zealand is uh, that the uh, leader of the Green Party, James Shaw, has been not quite rolled but uh he he has been removed as leader and now has to to uh compete for 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 uh, votes again um and kind of, kind of to me a, a bit of a shocking development i mean I, safe to say you're more appraised of what goes on i think in, in the internal machinations of the green party but to me it was quite a quite a surprise i mean i don't what was your um what was your reaction to this news
1: yeah i think it was a surprise to to a lot of people and um you can see in the kind of the tone of all of the reporting there's been so far on this, which I think it's important to be clear about kind of where and when we are, because things will move pretty quickly, I imagine, for the next few days. Um, so this has only just happened. It's we're recording on Sunday morning, the twenty fourth, and this was only announced uh, yesterday evening. So it was basically just before the, the six o'clock news. Um, James Shaw and Martin Davidson, the the previous co-leaders of the Green Party, um, stood up on the tiles in Parliament at 5.30 and did an announcement, uh, basically reading out the results that had come out of the AGM yesterday. So the Green Party AGM happens every year, was happening yesterday. Um, And yeah, the big news, the only big news really out of that so far has been that um, James Shaw hasn't been re-elected. So The way the Green Party works is that every year, every leader, so that's parliamentary leaders, party leaders, policy leaders, all have to be re-elected. And the threshold to be re-elected is 75%, and he didn't meet that threshold. So it's never happened before that a parliamentary leader, one of the co-leaders, has not met that 75% threshold. So that's the way to think about it. It's not uh, an unusual vote of no confidence process, the process was completely normal. This happens every year. It's just that he has less support from the membership than a parliamentary leader has um, in the Green Party history. Um, So the way the party was set up is, as many people point out, extraordinarily democratic. Other parties don't have these opportunities. Um, But yeah, that's the the kind of base that's happened, is that you need to maintain 75% support in the party. And he hasn't. So this is what happens. <laughs> That's how the process works.
0: Well, and and obviously a reflection of the deep and lingering unhappiness that uh, at least the kind of more activistic base or the more kind of lefty progressive uh, part of the Greens has towards uh, Shaw. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of. It, it's a shock that it took this long. I suppose uh, you know we, we've obviously seen grumblings uh, for a long time. Uh, first, kind of more quiet, and then over the past what I would say a year, maybe a year and a half, ex- increasingly uh, explicit and vocal. Uh, not just from former Green MPs and 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 you know, but also uh, people within the party right now. Uh, sometimes putting their names on it, sometimes not. Clearly, there's uh, been a lot of unhappiness. And of course, you know, you, you can go through the archives of this show uh, and go have a listen to, to uh, some of the, the back catalog here to, to get a, a rundown of, of why that unhappiness is there. But, you know, I think it's safe to say, right, that, that Shaw has been far too, I guess, conciliatory with the, the Labour government, not willing enough to challenge um, their um, inability to, to really, uh, push policy as, as far and fast as it needs to go. Um, and, and it's kind of moved the Green Party into this more centrist technocratic direction, um, would you say, that, that that really kind of betrays a lot of its um, its, its activist roots, uh, which I think actually was, was one of the things that makes the New Zealand Green Party unique amongst the Green Parties um, uh, uh, around the world. I mean, the fact that, that New Zealand's Green Party really married initially in a way. The left-wing, you know, economic platform and, and social justice, along with environmental concerns. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what do you think? What does the what does this tell us? The fact that this has now happened. What does this tell us about Shaw's leadership? And, and what is the feeling? I guess you know, uh, at least as far as you can see it, uh, towards Shaw at Monkey Party.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way Shaw has already started to um, describe it is that. Um, he, he's, he wants to check basically whether the party still supports him, um, which he has to, you know, um, that's, that's how the system works again. Like he, he needs to run to be re-voted in as co-leader. He's not currently co-leader. There's only one leader of the Green Party. It's Manama Davidson. Um, so I guess, uh, the most, the way that, the way that Shaw would want to frame it is that the... Uh, delegates may not represent the wider feeling in the party right so he's going to go out and check with as many members as he can make sure that there's more support for him than was represented at the AGM because if that if the feeling at AGM so the votes were uh, 75 75 votes for James and 32 votes to reopen nominations so out of 107 votes about 30 percent of people said they'd rather reopen nominations and have a leadership contest then re-anoint James as leader of the party, um, which, again, has never happened before. Um, that level of dissatisfaction among delegates. Um, every year, there are a few reopen nomination votes. That's not unusual. So there's a lot of um, incorrect information going around that this is you know, a remit that was proposed or a, um, a one-off kind of thing that was proposed. But this happens all the time, and you just need to maintain over 75% popularity amongst delegates and he's failed to do that. Um, So in terms of the kind of animating issues that underlie it, you're definitely right that the more activist wing, the environmentalist wing, the social justice wing of the party um, have been increasingly dissatisfied with James Shaw over the last few years. You can see that um, not just in the kind of leaks and members leaving the party and ex-MPs the more radical XMPs making explicit kind of calls for change of direction, but also, um, you know, press releases from environmental organizations, even more conservative ones like Forrest and Bird have been really critical um, of the direction he's taken as minister of climate change. And I think he hasn't uh, been able to marry that role of minister of climate change in a labor government, you know, with a labor cabinet and labor budgets and labor policies um, with his leader leadership responsibilities for the Green Party. Uh, and it just hasn't looked plausible. He's not, you know, the, the policies he's been enacting have essentially been labor policies. There's lots of conflict between Green Party policy and what he's actually managed to get done. And he's sold everything he's been doing as this is what the Green Party is. This is Green Party in government. This is what it looks like. And it looks like 30% of the party isn't happy with that. So we'll see, we'll see. So what happens from now is that over the next week, people can put their hands up to run to be co-leader of the Green Party. Anyone can. The the, uh, gender requirements have changed. So it could be a woman, anyone of any gender could put their hand up to run. So the people to expect to look for will obviously be MPs, but it doesn't even have to be MPs technically. Uh, When Russell Norman ran to be co-leader, he wasn't an MP. Um, and he won. So you can, you can run from any, anywhere. I could run <laughs> um, any, any member of the Green Party. Okay. Well you heard it
0: here first. Philip is uh, running for Greens, Carlina. I, I think that's a good one. Give him your
1: support. This is, I always love when we make news. So this is... This is really <laughs> no. So, yeah, people, people will start putting their hands up, hopefully, over the next week. And then, ideally, there'll be a, an actual contest of ideas for three, four weeks, and there'll be an election and we'll see who wins.
0: Well, I mean, just to go back to the, the fall of Shaw um, or the potential fall of Shaw, we don't know if he's actually going to, to, to end up uh, uh, losing a spot. But uh, to me, it feels like it's a, it's a question of political strategy. Like clearly, Shaw's, and, and I guess Davidson's idea, Mariana Davidson, the, the Greens co-leader, their idea was, okay, we don't have any leverage over this government because obviously they can, they could just run the government by themselves. Um, but we want to, I suppose, appear credible to voters. We want to have some sort of ministerial experience so we can say that we have, you know, we, we've done it. Um, and uh, so therefore it's worth just getting in bed with labor, um, even if it means that basically we're, we're gonna end up going along with what they, they, they end up doing. Um, and I guess that was their reasoning. I mean, I think that I would say an uh, you know, alternative approach, and I think one that probably would have been better is to, you know, first of all, if you can't get certain guarantees on, on policy um, in those initial negotiations, uh, you know, over confidence and supply, then, um, you know, just uh, be an opposition party. I mean, you know, uh, uh, if the labor, or, or if you're if you're in government, and the labor party ends up betraying uh, its promises either to you or to the public then that is i think cause for, for resignation saying hey you know what we were told that we were going to do x and y we we're going to we we're going to take on you know the the, the insane cost of living so getting worse that, that we we're actually going to do something about the housing crisis that we're actually going to attack poverty and actually do something meaningful about climate change now that's happened I can't in good conscience support this uh, this government anymore. But they didn't take that, that that oppositional route. They and so in a weird way, you've got all these rising crises and problems in New Zealand that really should be perfect for for the Green Party or, or a left party at least to take advantage of and to and to highlight and say, hey, why isn't anyone pointing this out? Um, but they kind of the obviously they're allowed to criticize the government, but you know it's been pretty muzzled ultimately because they have to work with these people and, you know, they the, the, their entire strategy is based on kind of, you know, appearing to be a legitimate junior partner. Um, yeah. And I think we're seeing the, the limits of that. Um, I mean, that's what it seems like to me. I know, I know what your thoughts are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah. I think that's going to be the big conversation over the next week. Um, whilst people are deciding who's going to run to replace James and you know to be clear one of those people who will run who will most likely run to replace James will be James he he will he will run again (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) he'll he'll have a mustache and a pair of uh, glasses
1: yeah Uh, yeah he'll be uh, he'll be shame's jaw Uh, (laughs) completely different guy completely different wearing a green hat or something Um, (laughs) yeah exactly so I think that's going to be the conversation is what's gone wrong Um, I mean the way it's already being talked about by uh, pundits is that the, the vote uh, against James is being seen as a cipher for discontent with the cooperation agreement with the Labour Party, um, as you're saying, which I think is definitely true to an extent, um, but that obviously isn't the only issue because Manama Davidson was re-elected; um, She didn't have the same issue with discontent. Um, so, and she also has a, you know, technically a, a position in the government, um, a ministerial portfolio. It's just that the way that she operates seems to keep members happier than the way that James operates. So I think you have to talk. You also have to talk about leadership style and ability. Um, why is it that martha Davidson has been able to um, keep enough members happy to not have this level of discontent, and James has had this now for a couple of years? So uh, last year when uh, James Cockle ran against him, a you know relatively unknown. Uh, activist from Dunedin, uh, ran against uh, James Shaw for leader, as anyone's entitled to, again, any year, um, and was thoroughly beaten, like a hundred and something votes to four or something. Um, What's not usually reported about that is that there were 20 votes that year as well for reopen nominations. So 20 delegates didn't want either of them to be leader of the party. Um, And that number 20 has now gone up to 32, that crossed the 25% threshold to be not enough to lead. So, why is that? That James is unable to maintain uh, leadership, discipline, and support through the party. Why? Did, why have no previous co-leaders reached this threshold of dissatisfaction? I don't think it's just the relationship with the government to blame, because Mutam is equally culpable for that agreement and for the you know perceived timidity um, that a lot of people on the left have been criticising. Um, so it's both. I think it, it is. He's seen as. Um, Tied to the and Labor government because the way that he um, comports himself as a minister is much closer to Labor, right? He seems more conciliatory in the way that he operates, uh, and so I think that's that's the bigger issue as a leadership issue. Is that is that the question is is that what the party actually wants to see? And it looks like a significant minority don't want to see that. So how sustainable is it to remain the leader of a party where a significant minority don't support you. So you know. Yeah. this is the time for them to figure that stuff out, I think, because it's not, an, it's not a, an election year, it's a local government election year, but it's not a national election year. So they need to figure this out before going into an election year next year, right?
0: Do you think that, that has something to do with the timing here, which is that um, if, you know, if they're going to replace the leader, of course you want to do it at this point, you don't want to do it next year. Um, for, yeah. for the reasons that you just pointed out. Do, do you think that's maybe why this is happening?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a few things that have probably played into it, it will be much less likely to happen in an election year. Parties tend to pull together, um, you know, unless you're the national party <laughs> over the last five years or so. Most parties tend to pull together in an election year and just sort of sprint for the finish line. But yeah, in terms of party politics, you definitely don't want to be having these, these issues going into an election year. So we're going to see a lot of, um, you know, rumours of the Green Party being uh, demise being greatly exaggerated over the next few weeks. Yes. Much has happened after every kind of internal squabble in, in political parties. People say, oh, it's the end of, of Labour, it's the end of the National Party, it's the end of the Green Party. Mm. It'll happen every time, right? Um, mm. And a lot of columnists who've never voted for or supported the Green Party are going to make very confident pronouncements over the next... A uh, couple of days over the next few weeks um, and with no idea what they're talking about. So I think the main thing to kind of take away from uh, this discussion I guess if you are kind of an interested observer in New Zealand politics but maybe not particularly clued in is that 90% of people talking about this won't have any idea how the Green Party works have never voted for the <laughs> Party, have never read any processes related to the Green Party, right? They have no interest in this as a um, as an actual process, all they have is vibes from their fellow uh, parliamentary pundits, right? <laughs> all just gallery journos talking to each other. And 10 well, per- the other 10 per- know, are all motivated actors, right? People have outcomes that they want to see. So, Luke Melpass has written a very pro James Shaw article um, and stuff, obviously, their political editor. And he used to work for the New Zealand Initiative. He's a far right economic commentator. And he shouldn't be treated as a you know, disinterested actor, kind of objectively observing the, the to's and fro's of the day and making pronouncements. He, he has a very clear outcome that he wants to see.
0: Well, I don't, I don't know though, Philip, because I, I do believe I, I uh, saw, I think, Matthew Houghton uh, <laughs> explaining to us about how uh, Shaw really should leave because clearly the, 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 you know, why would someone in his position want to do this job? uh he's not radical enough he's a white man yeah. uh just everything about him the, the party hates him i mean why why put up with that yeah, yeah. you know which i i, I take <laughs> i love because it implies that james shaw is, is his entire political career is some sort of um act of charity uh that he is bestowing upon yeah, the yeah. public and the party not that you know he is like every politician uh or almost every politician a very personally ambitious person you know who's like mapped this road uh to get to where he is for for a
1: long time he's um he's he's a government minister making probably what three hundred thousand dollars plus benefits um it's an an incredible lifestyle to have right these people are extremely powerful rich people objectively well
0: you know at the same time, Davidson kind of defended him because she was saying, Well, look, anyone wants to, to criticize James. I see how hard he works. He's out there grinding and he's he's putting in so much work. And listen, I don't doubt that. I am sure that in fact, I, no, that's definitely true. James Shaw, like like most people in, in you know in parliament, is working crazy hours and you know, is probably uh, <laughs> neglecting every other part of his life for the sake of, of his work uh good on him i guess but that that doesn't make him actually exceptional in parliament it's not like he's the only man who is working you know i don't know 60 70 hours uh in, in wellington you know uh, that yeah. that's i mean especially if you're a party leader yeah uh and an mp and a minister like, that's kind of what's going to happen it would be frankly shocking if you somehow were able to like just keep it to a, a minimum 40 hour week and you know go home every day Logging so that to me class. is not really a defense
1: yeah, yeah. no checking the, your emails the, in the evening
0: <laughs> yeah exactly the, the worst politicians you can think of all work hard that's not really the the thing that makes them good or bad that's just a thing that they do the the question is what are the outcomes of of the work they're doing what what is it they're working towards what does it mean for the rest of us Um, You know, I I think uh, certainly uh, on this podcast and I think um, clearly among a sizable amount of the uh, Greens membership, People don't feel like uh, Shaw's work has really been taking the party or the country in the right direction.
1: Yeah, you can you can so, work uh, hard on, you know, ineffective, ineffectual, or even malicious things, right? Christopher Luxon probably works extremely hard.
0: I'm sure he's a very, yeah, he's a very you know? diligent worker. <laughs> it doesn't
1: matter. It also doesn't matter how nice these people are. Like, that's, this no. is what's so frustrating about it. It's not a personal issue. Um, yeah. You know, I haven't spoken to James Shaw for many years, but I'm sure he's lovely in person. I'm sure you can, you know, as I used to say about Key, like get a beer with him. I'm sure he'd be great at a barbecue, whatever, whatever. Who cares, right? That's not, that's not what this issue is about. It's about no outcomes and competence.
0: If Jim Shaw was competing on a dating show, that would be all relevant. and, and but As it is, he is competing to be, you know, the, well, the leader of a, a, a political party. And then also, you know, theoretically, at least, uh, a, a leader of the country, a political leader. So yeah, whether he's nice and hardworking, whether he has you know
1: good suits, none of that is (laughs) remotely important. Exactly, but that's you know that's what the media want to talk about because that's stuff they understand. They can talk about personality politics till the cows come Mm. home. Um, Talking about outcomes and policies that's much harder Um, a political. Yeah, definitely. That takes. Let me
0: ask you: uh, What happens if he wins? Like, if he if he scrapes through and survives, what, what does that mean for the the Green Party? I mean, is he then unchallengeable for? I don't know how long,
1: um, well, or? First, uh, firstly, just in terms of technically how it would work, would be if, when, if he puts his hand up over the next week to run to be co-leader of the Green Party uh, against whoever else puts up their hands to challenge him, if there'll be an election. If he wins that election, which will have a lower um, threshold, right? He, he would need to just beat everyone else in the field to become leader. Uh, from then, it's still the case that if 25%, if over 25%, should be clear, over 25% need to vote reopen nominations to keep that spot empty. That can continue to happen indefinitely. So if he doesn't mollify 25% plus one of delegates for representing their wishes at, at the Green Party AGM, he will just continue to not be voted in as leader. He could be kept out indefinitely by this process, which would obviously be a disaster for the party, right? That would. I don't think that... Do you- it's unlikely. It's politically unlikely, right? As I said, going into an election year, that that would happen continually. Um, but technically, that's the case. If he doesn't, you know, keep the party base happy, they can mm. continue to not let him be leader. That's how uh, democratic the party is.
0: Mm. But, but as you say, they probably would be unwilling. Uh, in order to to prevent damage to the uh to the yeah. party especially uh before an election yeah that, that... yeah these
1: are these are green party members right it's it's not like there are just wreckers who've suddenly joined yeah. the party um and who don't want the green party to do well these uh, from the fact that they've been around for it looks like these numbers have been increasing for the last few years right they've obviously been involved in the party for some time the fact that even activists who've belonged to the party for years and years and years and have now left like you know, XMPs going on the records supporting these kind of um, messages are unhappy shows that it's not external. It's very much true old school Green Party members who are not happy with what's going on. So they're not going to leave the party. <laughs> it's his mm. problem to um, reprove his leadership. Right? He needs to bring the party on side if he wants to be leader. And I think that's fair enough. Like, if you're the leader of a party, you should have enough support across all the different belief systems within that party. You can't only represent seventy-five um, percent of the members of a party like the Green Party. If you want it to be a grassroots party, that's just not a sustainable way to lead a party.
0: Well, yeah, I mean that—that's democracy, right? So, um, I mean, in terms of people that that might challenge him, I mean, uh, one name is Chloe Swarbrick, and there's questions about. I'm um, um, obviously I think that she won Auckland Central. Tremendous achievement. Um, she's said a lot of. The right things. I think she's kind of, in terms of her rhetoric, has channeled some of the progressive or left-wing frustration with the Greens with the direction of the country. Um, but there's still an open question of, well, how much of a change would a Swarbrick uh, co-leadership really be from the status quo? Maybe some of the rhetoric would be would be better, but in terms of the overall approach and strategy and political outlook. Is it that much different? You know, I, 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 I mean, I don't know for sure. I guess it would have to be one of these things where you you have to see it in action to be sure. But um, and and you know, I think uh, having having looked at the way that Swobbick's rhetoric has changed since the the time when she entered the Green Party to now, it, it has been substantial and in the right direction, which is encouraging. But definitely, you know, I, I still have questions. I think a lot of people do. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are about this.
1: Yeah, I think you're bang on. Um... You'd have to, if just looking at um, who's on the Green Party list and the support they have internally and externally, you'd have to say that Chloe would be the, the obvious name to throw in. Um, she's had a like meteoric rise. Uh, winning an electorate seat is no mean feat in a minor party. Um, and Auckland Central is obviously symbolically quite a big um, feather in the Green Party's cap at the moment. So yeah, you'd have to say that would be the, the first name that everyone will be talking about uh, because she can now run um, you can have two female co-leaders now in the Green Party, and yeah, I think she'd she'd probably have quite a good uh, pull, especially to um, younger members who may have become a bit disenfranchised, a bit you know, a bit bored with James's kind of same old, same old approach. Um, but yeah, I think you're you're you've put your finger on it. It's it's really hard to know how much difference that would make in the strategic direction of the party and the battles she'd pick. Um, in terms of stuff she's represented over the last couple of years, it's been pretty encouraging, you know, talking about, uh, rent controls, uh, reasonably anti-establishment kind of takes on economic issues, which has been exciting to see. So who knows if she, um, put forward a platform like that, she could definitely run as a more radical alternative to James Shaw if she wanted to, it's the balls in her court, right? She can put forward any platform that's consistent with green party policy, which is surprisingly broad platform right so the way policy works in the green party is that technically the members write the policies the mps don't but the way those policies are interpreted is up to the mps and there's a lot of different ways to skin a, a green cat you can you can have a policy that says a policy from the members that says the outcomes we want to see for example i'm making this up might be you know sustainable equitable housing for all but what does that mean right is that a Is that a pro corporate development policy that just says, you know, unfettered development by uh, corporate uh, builders, for example? Should we be throwing money at uh, building companies until they build enough apartments? Or is that a kind of uh, NIMBY utopia where everyone lives in uh, huge manor houses? Like, this is is one of the problems that the Greens have had in Wellington, right? Is that party policy doesn't actually constrain a lot of those decisions because it can be interpreted in mutually incompatible ways. So, the cool thing about that is that Chloe or anyone who put their hand up to run can actually put forward a platform interpreting those policies in a way that they think makes sense. So, it could be a more radical way, it could be a more moderate way of interpreting those member led policies. So, you can run on a platform that says, you know, that gives an indication of the direction you're going to go in. And I think they'd have to. That's that's the cool thing about a leadership contest is that people will have to explain what it is they're going to run on. Um, I think Chloe's the obvious one, but there are also other names potentially in the mix. There's no reason other MPs might not put their hand in um, because the rules have changed. Uh, the you have to say the the women in the Greens at the moment are more senior, more experienced, more um, formidable as co-leader candidates, probably than the men, stereotypically. Um, Because it would have been the case before the rules had changed that the only people in caucus who could have challenged James, being men, would be Tiano and Ricardo, who are both pretty junior, right? Um, And may may run. There's no reason they wouldn't. I think they should to get their profile up. I don't know. Mm -hmm. They have nothing to lose. Uh, But yeah, the more senior people who've been around for a while, like Julianne Genta ran against Marama Davidson to be co-leader and lost, but she could throw her name in. Um, That would be an interesting competitor as another kind of, she's seen as more technocratic, but has a bit of a different leadership style. Um, She's definitely more uh, combative in the way that she works through issues. So that might satisfy some of the problems people have had with James seeming like a bit of a pushover in um, negotiations with Labour. Julianne Jent is no pushover, whatever else you think about it. And, you know, smart, strategic kind of operator. Um, But yeah, you have to say more on the moderate side, probably. So there'd be people she wouldn't get on side. Uh, Similarly with Eugenie Sage, who was uh, Minister of Conservation, very experienced, great kind of environment focus, but probably also wouldn't satisfy that radical demand. So it'll be interesting to see what the alternatives uh, that are presented, kind of the directions that they give. And Chloe is a bit of an unknown factor, as you say. Because she hasn't had the power to, to create those directions, really.
0: One other thing that, that I have to bring up, you know, I think it was yesterday, um, there was this uh, interview uh, with, with Manavid Davidson, uh, with, with the Herald, uh, full disclosure, I have not had a chance to read it because of the Herald Paywall. Uh, but the, the, the sort of big takeaway from it is is David's saying that I think I think some polling that they have shows that she thinks quote-unquote social issues are the way to to win power for the greens now obviously there's nothing wrong with you know standing up for for what we might call social issues but you know kind of kind of a vague and not very specific term Um, but of course things like abortion rights and ensuring that everyone is treated with dignity, you know, regardless of their background and who they are, all that stuff. That is important. Uh, no left party should, should sacrifice that. But in terms of the idea that that is the way to achieve power, when I hear something like that, that to me rings some alarm bells, because that is basically, you know, th- this has been the strategy of every failing Formerly left party in the Western world that used to be focused on bread and butter economics first and foremost, or at least you know on the forefront as its kind of like main rallying point, point. Um, and that kind of sacrificed that approach over the years as it its its composition changed, its membership changed, and and as a result, its its um, its base of popular support also changed and also dwindled. Um, now, obviously, the Greens are. are not working from an insanely large uh, pool of support to begin with, they're a minor party. But nonetheless, uh, when I hear something like that, it, it, that, that is, um, you know, you look at something like the Democrats in the United States right now, right? You've got this very terrible situation going on there where uh, the Democrats have increasingly appealed to white, affluent, uh, suburban, well-educated people um, and what's happened now is that they're losing the traditional multiracial working class base uh, or at least you know little by little it's eroding um, and there was a recent poll in the New York Times where they found that in, among democratic supporters for these midterms coming up this year that's a minuscule amount of them see the economy as the biggest issue even though right now in the US the economy is going completely haywire I mean you know things are not good. Poverty's grown, things are more expensive than ever, and every other pre existing problem is there. They see things like abortion and democracy as more important. Now, of course, abortion and democracy are important, but that is quite a stunning shift for a party that is traditionally meant to represent the interests of, of working class people. And then, meanwhile, the working class voters, many of them working class voters uh, who are not white, have uh, switched over to the, to the GOP in in stunning numbers and it's the gop voters who see the economy as the main issue and so yeah when i see davidson who was meant to be kind of the left wing uh leader i guess you know that was at least how she was sold when there was that battle between her and uh and, and genta she was kind of the more the more lefty of the two um that kind of suggests to me that the greens may be unwittingly going down the same road uh, has led to just, it leads to gray, a great whole bunch of left-wing or let's say social democratic parties. Uh, I mean, I don't, what, what are your thoughts? Am I, am I being a little uncharitable uh, here to, to Davidson in terms of um, how I'm taking her words?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, that's that's right. I mean, that's the Thomas Piketty's thesis, right? That um, over time, social democratic parties have uh, become more a base for educated affluent, uh, urban voters over the traditional, you know, quote unquote, working class, uh, blue collar vote. Um, and that's definitely been a problem for social democratic parties around the world. Um, I think New Zealand is a bit different in that MNP has meant that there are different constituencies that minor parties can appeal to. So this has always been a problem for the green party. I don't think this is a new thing. Um, the green party has always, in um, electoral terms, been more appealing to more educated, urban, younger, um, yuppies, basically, people. So it's not, uh, by numbers, it's not the vote of choice for uh, less educated, poorer, uh, rural or semi-rural or South Auckland voters, for example. Those people vote for Labour uh, or even New Zealand first. So yeah, I think it is, um, it's a real issue, but, but one that's sort of always existed. Uh, but I think they are, they are at a, in a real risk, though, of doubling down on that. And I think that's something that both James and Marama have made the mistake of doing, is that recognizing the base that they currently have, and wanting to double down on those issues, instead of being able to spread their votes, uh, and their appeal to a wider audience. So a few, um, a few candidates have managed to do that. We talked about this uh, after the last election, there was some exciting signs from some new candidates that they were able to appeal to a broader coalition. Um, and they, they were typically the more left-wing or candidates who ran as a more left-wing kind of alternative. Ricardo did really well um, in a not particularly left-wing electorate, but getting votes from a, a broader, more diverse uh, base of, of types of voters, for want of a better word a broader demographic than the Greens have typically appealed to. Um, So it can be done. You just have to run um, with a more kind of populist or, you know, big base kind of strategy. And I think that's something someone like Chloe could do. Um, Like you said before, the way she speaks is much more appealing to those things. Um, The issues she's been talking about have been much more economically populist in terms of rent controls, anti-corporate stuff. Uh, anti-landlord rhetoric that James Shaw and even Mutimer Davidson don't really touch, as you say. Um, I think Mutimer mm-hmm. has been also far too conservative in the way that she's wielded her leadership. Um, as you say, when she ran for leader, she ran as the kind of, well she was deliberately aping kind of Corbin rhetoric at the time. It was for the many, not the few kind of language. and we've seen almost no sign of that from her in the <laughs> last few years, right? She's very mm-hmm. She's gone very quiet and focused on her kind of government responsibilities. So I think it should also be a wake up call for her because she gave her full throated endorsement to James over the last week. There are a couple of articles Mm. and interviews with her saying, look, James works super hard. I think he's great. Um, She can't really come out now and say that she supports him, but it's clear that she does. Mm. Um, And I think it should be a wake up call for her that if the party she's a co-leader of is this dissatisfied, why is that? I think she needs to reconnect with the party the same as James does. It's it's hard, right? It there will always going to be these tensions in a political party like the Greens that have activists and passionate people connected to the grassroots. When you're in the kind of ivory tower of parliament, it's easy to get disconnected from that. And I think they've just let it go too far and they just need to reconnect with the roots and have a hearts and minds tour <laughs> of the country um, and try to fix those uh differences.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just to be clear, I mean definitely the, the the greens problem has always been that they do have that that narrow base that, that you know as you say and they appeal to this kind of well-educated voters yuppie voters you might say um but if we're talking about growing power which is what this this course is about it's about growing It's about broadening the, the party's base uh it sounds to me like their idea is, as you say is to double down on it instead of to say wait hold on so who are we not appealing to and why are we not appealing to those people how can we appeal to those people um, I think that you know, I mean, look, they, they don't have to listen to me, uh, but I, if uh you know I was advising them, I would say that's a, a I think that's a, tip, a ticket to electoral oblivion and relevance You you want to be able to get the the broadest coalition you get, you can, and the broadest coalition um is is if you appeal to people's, you know, the, the most basic kind of needs, which is which is economic needs, which is just making sure that they can have shelter over their heads, they can afford food, they can, you know send their kids to to a decent school all those things but you know hey uh they haven't listened to us yet so i don't know why they'd start now so i think it is
1: i I think it is um an interesting discussion though that they'll have to have again that they have to have over the next few weeks over the the course of an election um because i mean this was essentially james's pitch when he ran to be co-leader his pitch was i can appeal to a wider constituency for the green party um you know he, he wouldn't he doesn't usually say this, but he, you know, wears a suit and wines and dines business types to try to get that kind of blue green vote on side. Um, And I think we've seen the limits of that. So, you know, there's a certain amount of pushing outside the natural um, green constituency, for want of a better word, I guess, that he's been trying to do. And if you listen to the, uh, you know, perennially national voting uh, pundits and, brilliant geniuses on Twitter, they'll say that the reason the Greens are doing well and are appealing is that James Shaw is the kind of friendly face of the Green Party, right? He's um, a white man in a suit, like uh, you said, Matthew Houdin said, uh, but that that somehow lends legitimacy to the party as an organization. But I think we've seen the limit of that, right? The Greens aren't overtaking Labour as a force on the left. There's no kind of growth in anything outside that. Um, and most of the people who say that that's what lends the greens legitimacy, hate the party and don't vote for them. So I don't know how much attention should you pay to those people?
0: And also activists are leaving the party. Uh, the people who are the, your most core committed people are leaving. Um, that's not typically a good sign. Um, unless you want to turn the party into something completely different in which case, well then, okay. But then we're not talking about the greens anymore. We're just talking about you. Exactly. Having a, having a party. Well, I mean, we could talk about this for a very long time. And obviously, I'm sure by the time this even hits, there's gonna be 18 new developments in PC, <laughs> like, <but that laughs> will be completely day, irrelevant. Yeah. yeah, but to talk about something that will not be irrelevant because it is over and done with now. Uh, and, and I don't think there'll be at least anything super dramatic uh, that comes out in the next you know, uh, few hours, days, whatever. Uh, is we should touch on the New Zealand First Foundation news because uh, it is pretty stunning. Um, I mean, I guess a, a brief rundown of this issue, uh, uh, two members of New Zealand First started a, uh, a foundation that was separate but <laughs> clearly connected to the party uh, where they essentially laundered campaign donations. Um, but because this was a foundation, it wasn't the party, uh, nothing was de- uh, declared. You didn't see who was giving this money. And they would lend money to the party, and then the party would pay it back. And so they, they sort of basically just circumvented electoral laws. Um, There's a big trial about this that's been going on for, God, I don't know how long. It, it's, it's been a while. Um, and they were just uh, acquitted. They were found not guilty. Uh, and I mean, my understanding is that's because the, the Serious Fraud Office decided to do this as a uh, 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 to prosecute it as an issue of theft, I believe, or, or sort of um, like deceit rather than a violation of electoral law, which it clearly is, at least that, that seems like it is to me. It's and I, I mean, there's other there's actual electoral law experts who agree. Um, but that's why they, they managed to get off. But I mean, Yeah, I mean, at worst, this suggests that you can very, very easily game the uh, laws we have around uh, uh, private financing of of politicians and parties in this country. Uh, It barely takes any work. Because the thing is, that foundation, I mean, it's not as if it was doing anything else outside the party. They were paying for like office space and ads and stuff. I mean, it's, it's the most just they weren't even trying to hide it. They weren't even trying to hide what they were doing. And, I mean, that's what that's what all the uh, the, the witnesses who donated said. They, they said, oh, yeah, I just thought this was going to New Zealand first. Well, and, and why wouldn't you? It was called the New Zealand First Foundation. It's in the name. Yeah. It's That's right there in the name. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it seems like maybe they're going to try and um, close this loophole. But, I mean, you know, it just... It, it's it's another reminder of how we love to pat ourselves in the back for supposedly how you know how uh, tightly regulated um, our politics is and, and and you know among other things, but at the end of the day, when you look a little closer, when you sort of brush aside some of the you know the 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 glitter, um, it doesn't look so hot. I mean, this is this is pretty this is pretty uh, sleazy stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's pretty uh, open and shut that it's corruption, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you can donate this much money uh, without having your name disclosed in, in blatant disregard of the actual intent of the electoral law, if not the, uh, the leader of it, um, then, yeah, what are we doing at the top of all the rankings of most transparent, least corrupt countries in the world, right? <laughs> this is kind of uh, putting a taking well, we, off that.
0: We, we paid a lot of people to get up there, so, um, <laughs>
1: maybe that's it but yeah (laughs) it's it's very sleazy like you're saying um and just based on what uh journalists have been saying about it it's it's probably an open secret who the people are involved i'm sure that all the journalists know and they probably think that everybody knows because new zealand's such a small country right everyone's having lunch with everyone else in wellington um (laughs) but that's not good enough like that's not how a country should should function and i think this really makes it incumbent um on the government to change something if this is what can come out of the law as it is they need to change the law or change mm-hmm. the way the serious fraud office works or the electoral commission something has to change right this isn't sustainable otherwise mm-hmm. every political party who knows what's good for it should set up a foundation called the you know insert political party <laughs> name here foundation and do exactly this if it's legal <laughs> why would you not right replicate it yeah, it seems
0: like you're not gonna go to jail, so it's exactly.
1: Great. What are you gonna do wrong? Yeah. And it, it also, you know, it also gives Winston Peters a platform to shout vindicated for the next six months, as he loves to do.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's another element of this where it, it's obviously it's terrible, but then also on the flip side, it is another like fun little chapter in the story of Winston Peters, just the yeah. man who really untouchable. I don't understand how he he is constantly. <laughs> surviving just scandal after scandal. I mean, it's impressive. It really is as terrible as, as he is. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think it's also worth noting, by the way, that this money, I mean, it, it's it's a, we we talk about corruption, it sounds like it's hyperbole. I mean, it really is what this was. The idea what, like Graham Hart, for instance, testified at this trial, one of the richest men in New Zealand, uh, that he had given money to them uh, in the hopes that they would uh, and basically, I mean, you know, this is the discussions they were having as he was giving them money, that they would oppose a capital gains tax. And of course, it's exactly what happened. And, and, you know, I mean, it's an open question whether Labour really would have pushed for it anyway. Um, but clearly, uh, New Zealand first um, entry into government was the, the leading precipitating factor to, to, you know, killing that policy. Uh, so, at least in the, in the, in the early years. So... It, that really is, you can't get a more direct example of, of corruption and why this is so corrupt. And I mean, you know, just imagine any other party. Just imagine, I don't know, uh, if, if if God forbid the Labour government ever, you know, wanted to make some serious actual reforms to the health sector to, you know, decommodify it. Uh, if suddenly, you know, somebody donated to the, the Labour Party Foundation, um, uh, you know, health insurance companies and, you know, <laughs> other interests, being like, hey, maybe don't do what you're doing. Um, I mean, you know, it's just a hypothetical. I mean, or you know, if they ever did free dental care, you know, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of interest that would be threatened by that too. The the the, the, the possibility of corruption here is is very uh, very big and real. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is it is stunning. It seems like everyone is equally shocked that basically nothing happened. I mean, I think no one thought nothing anything was going to happen to Winston. But then the fact that the, the, nothing happened to these two unnamed guys as well
1: um, is yeah. is pretty remarkable. It's just it's just clearly money for policy, right? They're just buying mm. policy outcomes, which you know we like to think we live in a democracy, and that's quite uh, quite an unseemly way of doing it. You don't know I need mean to be so obvious about these things, um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, imagine any other situation. Like uh, probably the most obvious one is the every election there are attacks on Pharmac, right? Um, And you will have pharmacy barons donating money to the National Party on the understanding that they'll undermine the uh, independence and integrity of our Pharmac system, Um, which they, you know, that that this probably is the reason that a lot of people, a lot of rich people donate to the parties that they do is because they want to see outcomes. Why do you think multimillionaires donate so much money? It's it's an
0: investment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know,
1: they, they want to see some some outcomes from what, what they're putting their money into. And as we've seen, yeah. it's a great investment in New Zealand to donate money to political parties that are going to serve your ends. Like look how look how much money they saved by New Zealand first potentially mixing the capital gains tax. That's a huge windfall for Graham Hart, etc. Uh, fishing companies. De- definitely. You know, yeah, the, worth
0: the investment, worth the like, whatever millions of dollars that he gave. Definitely. Absolutely.
1: It's worth just about any amount. If that's, if that's your, <laughs> your KPI, right? Um, the, the cameras on fishing boats is another obvious one. Um, yeah, yeah. Dylan first went, really went into bat against that, um, where even when labor seemed like they did want to bring it in. Um, and yeah, fishing companies, not happy about the extra, the extra costs and the extra attention that would bring them. Um, so yeah, it's definitely worth a few million dollars to throw at a political party if that's the outcome you're going to get. So yeah, I guess mm. basically the the story here is donate to political parties. It, it's worth it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only if you have you know fifteen thousand uh, yeah. uh, dollars
1: that you can you can give.
0: Then then uh, otherwise if it's just you know your twenty bucks, don't worry about it. That's not going to do it.
1: definitely. I mean- Definitely don't do the uh, small people-powered campaign because you know who's going to do what you say just because you give them twenty bucks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, also, I mean, we don't want we don't want uh, uh, our parties in the pocket of, of big tenant as well, <laughs> so, um, we're in, in, in the pocket of big renter. You know, big democracy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. One other thing I, I will say about this, uh, you know, I mean, I, not to take it back to the US again, but you know, is the the country, I, I, you know, I've, I've been examining and writing about for, for years, and, you know, it's, they're in they're a uh, accelerated stage of decline compared to us, you know, so in some ways, we can look at them to, to, you know, look at what might be coming down the road, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of the problems in the US for, for a long time, and I think now we're seeing really the fruits of it, the, the really, really grim fruits, uh, is that, uh, there has uh, long been this double standard of who, who gets punished and what crimes get punished and, and which don't. And of course, you, know, you throw the book at low level offenders, offenders who uh, uh, come from terrible socioeconomic backgrounds um, who come from, from generally, you know, who have all sorts of horrible extenuating circumstances that have led them down the path that they're on. Um, and then when it comes to wealthy and powerful people, um it's kind of like suddenly the justice system is very understanding and and is willing to turn a blind eye to certain offenses and I, i mean we're not at that stage in new zealand but you know this is this is not a good trend to keep happening you know i mean we do have a very screwed up justice system uh where we just throw far too many people in prison and we 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 don't look at the root causes of why people end up doing some of the terrible things they do. To, to prevent them from doing those things, um, yeah. At the same time, I mean, oh, okay. Well, if we're going to throw the book at these people, then surely we th- we should throw the book at, at white collar crime as well. But which I I consider a very different category of crime. You know, I think those are those are people who have you know uh, have the full advantages and privileges of, of you know uh, of wealth and and you know being able to make the Decisions that they do without sort of you know the 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 grind of kind of um, uh, poverty and, and and other things uh, going on that we might see in some of these you know other criminals, um, and and the people who are, you know often these are these are uh, crimes of greed and malfeasance and you know very calculated. I mean the New Zealand First Foundation is a very good example. This is not some sort of spur of the moment. Thing and it, you know it wasn't just it wasn't under the stress of running a party these two guys were like spur of the moment we're going to start a, a foundation to launder political uh, donations no this was a very intricately uh, well not that intricately but it was a it was a relatively well planned um, scheme to to cheat the system and that should be punished that's there, there isn't much of an extenuating circumstance there that's just wanting to break the rules um, so I think. It, it, I'm not saying this is going to be the case for going forward. I don't know. I hope it's not. But I don't think it's a good thing for us to accept the idea that, you know, oh, if you're a person in a particular position, then we don't have to worry about you committing certain crimes. I don't think that we, we should not stand for that in this country.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, why have a justice system if you can so clearly kind of wrought things at the, at the upper end? Um, it definitely gives the lie to any kind of, you know consistency between those types of crime as you say
0: yeah absolutely well okay look uh i, I think uh that's about all we have time for um i'm sure there's going to be all manner of insanity that's going to happen over the next week uh with the the greens uh uh leadership competition but um it's always great to, to have you here it's always great to, to have your uh unique insight into the the goings on of, of the green party and um you know i guess we'll see what happens over the coming week uh, to the rest of you guys uh as always do what you can to support us if, if you whatever you can subscribe a few dollars whatever you can send our stuff to whoever you think might be interested that's the main thing that we want people to do we want people to hear the kind of analysis that we bring to New Zealand politics and then um, above all have a great week uh things are grim try and you know find the, the the those beautiful moments where you can with your loved ones your friends uh you know log off smell the sun uh, smell the roses a little bit enjoy the sunshine oh uh, well I'll enjoy the sunshine. You guys might have to just make do with uh, <laughs> uh, stealing a little bit of overcast sky every now and then. Um, but uh, that is us for another week. Uh, we will catch you uh, 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 next week. Uh, goodbye. The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass up full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no